We're in week three of our series, The Family Tree, and we're really unpacking the whole uh, unbelievably dysfunctional relatives of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And here's the deal with uh, the genealogy of Jesus, as we discovered last week. And if you weren't with us, I invite you to get the app or download the podcast and you can catch up with where we are. But the truth is that the story of Jesus doesn't start with once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away. Uh, we like our fairy tales. We, we hang on to those, those special things of, the, of the, the, the kingdom that needs the new king to come. And we, we love those fairy tales because they speak of hope. Uh, we also, you know, we're in a season right now that it may not be fairy tales, but it is like 24-7 back-to-back Hallmark holiday extravaganza. And look at this. This makes me sick. Starts Friday, October 22nd. What? People have been cheering it up with holiday classics at the Hallmark Channel since, uh, since before Halloween, everybody. And I know that that's like, that means that over the next few weeks, there have been and will continue to be 7,492 hours of nonstop holiday magic. But for those of you that don't have time to invest, Basically, it's 97 different ways to share the exact same story. It's all one same story in the Hallmark. And if you don't know, let me just help you really quick. The truth is, uh, it kind of goes like this. The cliff notes are, there's a very successful career woman. Um, too busy for love. Uh, too busy with work. Uh, she's engaged to an ad exec in New York City. And he's got all the fancy things and provides a lot for her. But uh, he's kind of got a bah humbug attitude, to be honest. Um, as she's working away in her downtown Manhattan apartment, uh, she gets a phone call from her mom and dad who own a small little boutique store in a small town in Vermont. And they're trying to keep a, a good, positive uh, attitude, but she quickly learns that the store is a little bit in disrepair and they're struggling because dad is just not getting around like he used to. And so she's got hours stacked up of vacation time. So. She leaves the big city and she makes the trip down to the Vermont city and uh, she helps her family start renovating the boutique. She goes to the local har uh, hardware store and there is an unbelievably eligible bachelor in a red and black plaid shirt who helps her find the paint and the paint brushes. And as she's loading up the back of her 1967 Merry Christmas green Ford pickup truck, She's so busy that she needs to go and she's in a rush and he tries to tell her the real meaning of relaxing during this holiday season. Later on, they'll go ice skating together. They'll put up a Christmas tree. She'll fall off the ladder, land in his arms. They'll look at each other. Mistletoe is hanging appropriately above them. They'll kiss, it'll snow. There's a golden retriever. You're welcome. <laughs> I just saved you hours upon hours on the Hallmark Movie Channel. As much as those are fairy tales and once upon a times, the story of Jesus is so much deeper than that. The story of Jesus isn't about the same hope that you see in all these other fairy tales. Jesus is the hope that all the fairy tales point towards. He's the answer. He is the culmination. He is, he is the embodiment of peace on earth. And it doesn't start with a once upon a time. It starts with a historical genealogy. And as we said last week, the purpose of that genealogy 
would be to present a proper pedigree. Uh, They are the seventh of their name and they take on the throne and they have this and they have that and the genealogy puts you in the right bloodline and it makes you heir to the right kind of stuff as as, as, uh, things are handed down, inheritances are handed down from one generation to the next. But ironically and and counterculturally, Jesus' genealogy includes an improper pedigree. It it includes a a struggling group of dysfunctional family members that you really would prefer not to invite to Thanksgiving and to Christmas. Jesus' genealogy includes those that were cultural outsiders, that in the law of God, they wouldn't even be allowed to enter into the temple of God. Yet God says there are people that are going to be in the line of Jesus to show you that anybody can come. There'll be people that have moral, unbelievable moral failures from incestual relationships to covered up adulterous affairs that lead to unwanted children and murdered husbands. It will culminate into those in his family tree that are overlooked and are unloved. The good news for you and me is there's room at that family table for anybody. No matter what the past looks like, God has a spot for you at his table. To jump in today in part three, we're going to take a piece of the genealogy. And if you've never read Matthew chapter one, it starts with the, this person begat, this person begat, this person begat, this person. It's the kind of reading that you kind of want to skip through to get to the good part. But as I said last week, nothing is wasted in scripture. And there are some stories tucked away in those names that we're going to learn from in this Christmas season. In order to do that, today we're going to rewind from the manger 1,400 years to 1,400 B.C. And we land in the nation of Israel that's about ready to cross over the Jordan River. They have exodus from Egypt. They are now free. They've wandered in the wilderness because they've not figured out how to obey God first and trust God with all their heart. But finally, they're at a place where they're going to cross over the Jordan River. They're going to take possession of the promised land, and they're going to begin to carve out a national existence. It's not just a, a, a kind of a ragamuffin a band of, of uh, tribes, but become one nation under God. And in Deuteronomy, God speaks through the prophet and he gives them direction of if they're going to go in here and follow, this is what they need to do. God says, hey, here's the good news. If you faithfully obey the commands I'm giving you today, if you follow through and you obey, then here's what's going to happen. I'm going to send rain on your land in its season. I'm going to make it rain in a very real way. So both autumn and spring rains so that you may gather in your grain, new wine and olive oil. I'm going to provide grass in the fields for your cattle and you're going to eat and be satisfied. In other words, I'm going to be the provision for anything that you have. Now, here's where the wait a second. Whoa, 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 whoa. Back up the truck. Push pause. Be careful. Or you're going to be enticed when you get there to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. See, here was the problem with the nation of Israel. It's not that they didn't trust the one true God. They did. But they just didn't trust the one true God alone. 
they trusted the one true God, but when the going got tough, they added in all the other gods. And we tend to do the same. When God is good, we trust God. When things don't feel very good, we start trying to be God. We start putting our hand on the wheel. We can't trust that he's gonna, he's gonna uh, correct the skid, that he's gonna correct the wheel in the ditch. And so we say, "Lo, I got this, God. Let me handle it. Be careful, be careful. When it stops raining, when the job stops, when maybe your kids don't follow the way you wish they would, when, when you are face to face with a big giant in your life, be careful that you don't just put matters in your own hands, but you continue to follow me in the good and in the bad and in even the ugly. The Lord's anger will burn against you if you turn away. He'll shut up the heavens so that it will not rain and the ground will yield no produce and you will soon perish from the good land the Lord has given you. And you know, people read that that kind of have issues with God already. And they say, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. See, his anger is gonna burn against him. That's not a loving God. Well, have you ever known anybody that hasn't ever like, that you've never been frustrated with? Have you, have, you, have you ever felt like you deserve the right to be a little frustrated with your kids every once in a while and say, no, you can't have the candy bar. No, you, no you've already asked for too much. No, I'm not gonna answer you right now. I'm gonna make you wait. No, you, you, you need to learn something. Look, God is a heavenly father that is the perfect father. And he, does, he never disciplines after, out of being ticked off, but he disciplines in the right way at the right time, in the right emotion, in the right attitude for the right purposes. Whether you respond to it right or not is up to you. This is the promise he gives to those, that nation of Israel. Now fast forward 80 years later. They've entered into the land, they've conquered Jericho, they've conquered other cities, they're creating space. And we get to the book of Judges, and Judges are all about these saviors. Judge basically doesn't mean like Judge Judy. It means more like a, a savior that would come and be like a deliverer. Samson was, was one of those, a, a judge in that time. Samuel was a, was a judge in that time. And instead of having a king, they had these judges. Well, sure enough, in the book of Judges, uh, we also get the story in the book of Ruth. It's happening in that same time of Judges. So look at this. In Judges chapter 17, here's what the Bible says. In those days, Israel had no king and everyone did as what? They, all right, everybody, Nacogdoches, Lufkin, Dybald, Duncan, say it with me. And everyone did as they saw it. Yeah, and we love to do that. Whatever we think is right, we all have a little bit of an issue with ever thinking that someone else might have full control over us. We, we don't like the idea. I mean, we have a hard time on, on even if there's a sign that says, please do not walk on the grass. And we're like, this is America. Please don't park here. This is America. These seat covers cover the seats in the uh, Lufkin Auditorium. <laughs> I'll pay my tithe around here. I'm going to sit wherever I want. <laughs> oh, too close? <laughs> okay, okay. Like the young kid who uh, took his girlfriend to Chipotle, and I was actually there uh, waiting in line, and I saw him park. He just parked right in front in the handicapped spot. And he gets out, and she goes, and I could hear, see her just going, and he goes, like that. And so... You know, me being a real quiet, reserved person, I opened the door. I said, hey, dude, 
Are you, what are you, 16, 17, 18, what? 17, I said, yeah, you're not handicapped. Get out of that parking spot and show your girlfriend how to actually be a man, okay? Yeah, you're welcome, America, you're welcome. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah, and, and after, and, and then Justin Lindsay apologized and said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Pastor Jeremy. I, no, just kidding, just kidding. No, they, they lived in the way they saw fit because we, we just don't like other people telling us. Uh, we, don't think, we don't like the idea of someone being in control, even God sometimes. And the book of Ruth opens very similar and look at the connection that we're making. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a what? A famine in the land. What does this mean? They weren't careful. It means they didn't trust. God had promised, I'll make it rain. But they just couldn't have no other gods before him. They, they, they had to have backup plans. Whatever they saw fit, there was a famine. Let me say something to you, friends. There is a whole lot of ways you can choose to live your life. I promise you, when you live your life outside the boundaries of God's word, you may experience some pleasures of this world. You may do well in some things, but at some point, famine is coming, a dryness and a desert and sickness and malnourished spiritually and emotionally and relationally. As you do what you see fit, that's, that's the reverse promise that will come true in your life. The story opens up and begins to unfold there in Ruth. And I'm just gonna tell you right now, this is kind of like, we're gonna, we're gonna have like a chick flick Bible story today. This is a cool, this is a chick flick and uh, it's gonna be, we're, we're, gonna, we're just gonna get into it. That's why I've, I've titled this message, Genealogy or General Hospital. And so I'm gonna start laying out all the characters. You know how the soap opera will start and everybody's like. And then, and then the, the cool guy's like, anyway. Here's the Bible genealogy, General Hospital. Here we go. A man from Bethlehem in Judah. Bethlehem sound familiar? Together with his wife and two sons, this small little family of four, in the middle of this famine, they went to live for a while. It wasn't a plan to go long-term. They didn't have intentions to stay there forever, but for a little bit, they decided to go to the country of Moab. This is outside the promised land. And so let me give you some key characters, even the city is a character, Bethlehem in Judah. Ironically, in a famine, the name Bethlehem means house of bread. And they are experiencing famine. God says, trust me. They say, oh, so they go away from the house of bread in order to find bread. Ironic. Moab is simply a pagan enemy territory 50 miles away from Bethlehem. Only 50 miles. It's not like they traveled across the mountains and over the seas. I mean, this would be like us saying, oh my goodness, it, it's, 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 it's a famine in Lufkin. We got to move to Livingston. That's the kind of situation that, 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 but that's what happens when you do whatever you see fit to do. Now, the man's name of the husband over this whole crew was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. 
Now, here's what Naomi means. Naomi's name means pleasant and lovely. She's a looker and she's kind. You know, you can see some women that are lookers, but they're not kind. And then you have women that are kind. And then you've got Naomi's that are pleasant and lovely. Naomi's a Hebrew word, but the, the, the English word for Naomi is Janet. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> How you doing? So, Elimelech means my God is king. Now, that's interesting. Every time he looks in the mirror, when he says his own name to himself, my God is king, but Elimelech, even in his own identity, refuses to see the identity of my God being king, and all he can see is the bare cupboards and his, his hungry two sons. And instead of putting it in God's hands, he takes matters into his own hands. So they went to Moab and they lived there. Pagan city, different culture, whole different beliefs. Instead of a uh, uh, monotheistic culture, which would be one God, it's a polytheistic culture, many gods. And that's where they take their kids and they put them in the school system. Their friends are polytheists. Their uh, neighbors are polytheists. And they do all this and they put them in that environment just because they just they couldn't wait for the rain. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, in the middle of all this, dies. And the plot twists. She was left with her two sons. Now, at least she has her two sons because when you're a widow and you don't have sons, you have no choice but either to become a beggar and go into total poverty or become a prostitute. But if you have sons, their legal responsibility in the family is to take care of the widows. They name, the, the, uh, those two boys marry Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. Hey, be friends with everybody, but be careful who you hang out with a lot. It can affect things. Just because they wanted to find food for the table it resulted in their two sons moving away from their own understanding of following God, marrying into a pagan culture, and the family tree is dramatically changing because of an appetite. Careful not to exchange a long-term promise of God for a short-term appetite suppressant. Careful. Now here, it gets even worse. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion, those two sons, they also die. Now, not only do you have Naomi, a widowed mother, but now you have two other widows, Orpah and Ruth, because Kilion and Malon have passed away as well. Orpah and Ruth simply are widows without sons. What is God going to do? How is God going to turn this around? How does this story fit into Christmas? I'm so, I'm so glad you asked. I'm going to tell you. So we go to part one. Part one of this unbelievable story that unfolds that's part of the family tree of God. 
So here's how it goes. Um, when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughter-in-laws prepared to return home from there. It wasn't long after they had moved their whole family that God still provided for Israel. Now they're in a spot where they need the food, so they're going to go back to where they should have been in the first place. So Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, okay, go back each of you to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. Basically, Naomi's Dr. Quinn medicine woman loading up the wagon and she's got the horses ready and she gets up on, on, on the seat. She's got the reins and she puts the, the bonnet over her hair and the women come out like, like with their little suitcases and they're going to ride in with Naomi back into Bethlehem. And she's like, no, 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 no. You guys stay here. I can't do anything for you. You need to stay. But they don't want to leave Naomi. There was a pleasantness and a loveliness that was so attractive. Listen, if you're going to know God and not learn the pleasantness and loveliness of God, you're not really letting God affect you. There ought to be something that happens to the way we are kind to people, the way we're gentle with people, the way we're listening to people. If you bow a knee to Christ, but you just say, well, hey, that's just the way I was raised. You know, I'm kind of, I'll shoot straight with you and tell it like it is. Basically giving yourself permission to be a jerk. That may be who you are and who your daddy was, but that is not who Jesus is. And it's not who Jesus has called you to be. He's called you to be transformed by the changing the way you think. And there was something that was transformative about Naomi's lifestyle. Naomi says, may the Lord grant that each of you would find rest in the home of another husband. You, I'm not going to be able to take care of you. And then she kissed them goodbye and they wept out loud. They just three girlfriends. <laughs> but they said to her again, no, 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 we're going to go back with you to your people. But then we only said, return home. I'm telling you. Now she's getting a little ticked. Why would you come with me? Am I gonna have more sons? Hello, I don't think so. Who could become your husbands? Uh-uh. Return home, I'm telling you, daughters, even if I thought I were still, even if I thought there was still hope, and I wonder how many of us are in a place where it just feels like there's no more hope. Even if there was a little bit of hope. Even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, you gonna wait until they grow up? I don't think so. Would you remain unmarried for them? Uh-uh, no, my daughters. It's more bitter for me than for you. So, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. This is how she begins to package the understanding of her perspective. And many times, when we find ourselves to no fault of our own, going out of the boundaries of God's plan, all she was doing was following her husband. It wasn't Naomi who made the decision to go to Moab. It was Elimelech. And in that culture, you just did what your husband said, do. And they came over. There's no, not gonna be any discussion. There's no mutual submission here. They're gonna go over here now to no decision-making of her own. She's not saying, well, your, your dad just had to find where the rain was. No, it's, it's God's fault. God did this. God's hand is turned against me. And at this, they wept aloud again, chick flick, like I'm saying. Now, at this point, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. Um, and she went back into Moab and later started a very successful television show. 
Um, but Ruth clung to her. Ruth loved Naomi. Many times when I'll perform a wedding ceremony, I'll talk out of Ruth chapter one and this promise that Ruth, with no need to make this promise, she makes a promise, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Like I am gonna be a part of you. That's the kind of covenant relationship that a husband and wife join into and it's a covenant relationship that Naomi and Ruth had. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. Now, when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was beginning to get stirred. Like the whispers, like, oh, did you see that? Come check it out. People stepping onto the wooden you know, porch and outside the saloon and outside the post office. And, and they're, they're taking the, the, the slow trot with the wagon in the back down the dusty street of Bethlehem. And people are watching and leaning over the rail there in the, in the downtown city. And some of the women say, can that be Naomi? Like they're trying to figure out, is that Naomi? She looks a lot different. She left pleasant and lovely. Now, not so much. How do we know that? Well, she says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Mara meant bitter. Can I tell you, friends, you hanging on to a bitterness, you might think you're getting justice by being bitter at that other person. Bitterness rots your bones, the Bible says. Bitterness can change your reflection. It changes people when you're hurt and you're dry and you're mad and you're angry. You don't look like you. That's not the way God meant for you to live. I went away full, she says, but the Lord has brought me back empty. But did she really go away full? Did she go away full? No, they left because they had empty stomachs thinking they would have a full life. But in reality, when they went outside of God's directive, what they thought was gonna be full actually became empty. And instead of trusting the things that they had and being, considering the blessings of already having the marriage and having the sons and trusting God through the hard times, they lost a lot of those things. Now, here's what I want to say to you. Naomi's, write it down if you're taking notes. Naomi's theology was right, but her perception was wrong. Her theology is right in that God is in control, but her perception of how God works was wrong. Her perception is that God's in control and he's making all these bad things happen. It's famine, it's dead ends, but here, here's really what's happening. The wrong direction always equals the wrong destination. Naomi is getting the sum total of going in the wrong direction in her life. And now she's ended up at a destination she didn't want. Now, when it comes to dead ends and famines, sometimes it's a result of different things in our lives. Do you know where dead ends and famines can come from in your life where things feel dried up, where it just doesn't feel like things are gonna go any further? the relationship, the finances, the emotions, you name it. Many times they can come from different areas like a mess we made. We went out, we made that decision, we invested that, we said no to this, we cut that off, we said I'm gonna do it my own way and you made a mess. And we love, we love to blame God for some of the messes we made. 
Even as kids, we're blaming each other for the messes we made. My brother uh, was in third grade and drew, I mean, he, he drew his own name. He was not third grade, three years old. He drew his own, like scratched whatever his name he thought he could do in the back of our closet. Well, my mom came in and said, Jared, what'd you do? He said, oh, my, Jeremy did that. Like, why would I write his anyway? So I got beat for that. No, I'm kidding. Like we love to blame each other for, for stuff. Dead ends and fam is a mess we made, or it could be a mess someone else made. Elimelech made the mess for his family, and now Naomi and Ruth are facing the consequences. Maybe it is just plain life. Friends, not everything is attached to something you did or didn't do. Sometimes people get sick. Sometimes death happens. Sometimes stuff doesn't work because we live in a broken world that is crying out to be brought back to wholeness again someday. And that's the promise of the word of God that someday we will have a new heaven and new earth, a perfect place. In the meantime, we're trusting in God making up the difference. But here's what all of these things do. Dead ends and famines in your life, they all are setting the stage for a miracle. There is no need for a miracle if there's no problem. And we're going to see a miracle begin to unfold in Naomi and Ruth. So. Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, her daughter. They arrived in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. This is where the time they've already planted the seed, the crops have grown, they've irrigated, and now it's time to bring in the harvest. And so as we get past this moment, let me just give you the moral of the story before the story. Here's the moral of the story before the story, and it's this. A pursuit of good things can take us beyond the border of God's will. Not every good thing in your life is a perfect gift. Not every good thing is exactly a God thing. Sometimes good things are a distraction from the God things. Maybe you've experienced that before. It seemed like a good idea at the time, but it wasn't a God idea at the time. Let me encourage you to not only take that moral of the story, but this moral, pursue obedience more than comfort. Like obey God even when it's un comfortable. How do we do that? One decision at a time, everybody. Man, I have been living right now where I have not been obedient to God. Okay. What, what can Monday look like? Okay. What can tonight look like? Okay. You're going to live in the rear view mirror the rest of your life then? You're going to deal with that the rest of your life? No. Repent. Repent simply means Change your mind and turn around. M move, shift. Say, no, 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 you know what? I thought this was the way we needed to do because this is what everybody else is doing. But I've realized this is not the way God wants us to live. And make the right decision in that. You can do it today. Don't worry about what yesterday happened. Now it's time to move forward. Pursue obedience more than comfort starting today. Here's part two, three key concepts to understanding the rest of the story. And here they are. There is an American tradition you need to understand. There's a theological concept you need to grasp. And then there's a little known secret. Let's talk about that whole American tradition. Anybody ever heard uh, the saying Sadie Hawkins? Anybody ever heard Sadie Hawkins? So if you haven't heard Sadie Hawkins, like if you, if you, you may have heard it like a Sadie Hawkins dance. Okay. Now some of you are like, oh yeah, I heard about that. Um, so, you know, some of you are like, well, no, I grew up Baptist. I mean, you know, holding hands led to dancing and you know how that goes. Anyway, so 
Sadie Hawkins is the idea where the women invite the men. The women ask the men out to a dance or to a date, okay? And so um, this isn't um, something we created. This was back in the 1930s. It was in a comic book called Little Abner. And Little Abner, in this comic book, there was a story about a town and a, a mayor of that town named Mayor Hawkins. And Mayor Hawkins uh, oversaw the entire city and he had a, a few different uh, daughters, but one of his daughters was Sadie, Sadie Hawkins. And to be honest with you, TBH, OMG, she was ugly. <laughs> Don't blame me. I'm not being chauvinistic. It's in the comic. She was U-G-L-Y. She had no alibi, okay? Uh, she was so ugly, she made onions cry. Uh, she was so ugly, she had to sneak up on a drink of water. And the water's like, <laughs> you know. Okay, anyway, moving on. So Sadie Hawkins is this whole story, and, and, and Mayor Hawkins creates this festival, and he gets all the eligible bachelors into the town square. He draws a line, and he says, we're gonna have a race. We're all gonna race. When the first gunshot goes off, you gotta run as fast as you can to the other side of town. When the second gunshot goes off, Sadie is gonna start running and whoever she catches, she gets to marry you. So, the, so, so all the guys are like, you know. <laughs> you know and they're, they're elbowing each other to the top front of the thing. And they're like, ah, tripping each other. Sorry, buddy. The second one, Sadie's like, Long story short, Sadie Hawkins. If you don't understand Sadie Hawkins, you won't understand the rest of the story of Ruth because Ruth is Sadie. She may not be ugly, um, but she has to pursue a relationship. Uh, she has to do what she can do to make it work. It's an American kind of tradition. Now we have the theological concept, and the theological concept that's gonna weave its way into here is called the kinsman redeemer. The kinsman redeemer is a Jewish uh, cultural responsibility. And here's how it would be defined, that, that a blood relative would be allowed to buy back that which had been tragically lost. When a widow has no sons, she loses her husband's land. She has no right to it. So someone else in the family, usually it would be the brother of Elimelech. But, but Elimelech didn't have a brother. So, you know, if that were still today, if your husband died, then the bro his brother would be responsible uh, to marry you. And some of you are like, <laughs> thank God that's over. And others of you are like, hmm, <laughs> you know, <laughs> okay, okay, <laughs> moving on. So if this blood relative was gonna take over, they were gonna buy back what had tragically been lost. And here were the things that would be lost if you were a widow without sons like Naomi and Ruth. Your land would be lost. Many times your freedom because your only two ways to survive in life after that would be a poor beggar, barely surviving as the poor, or a prostitute uh, trying to earn a, a, a barely a living. You would have... Uh, justice could be bought back because you had no one to defend you, no one to stand up for you in a court of law because women were not allowed to speak in court. They, they were not valued whatsoever in 
the Bronze Age culture. And then obviously there was no family, but a kinsman redeemer could bring back the land and bring the freedom and give you justice and you would find your place in a family again. So that's the kinsman redeemer. But now we have a little known secret. And that is, as you read from Genesis to Revelation, every story of the Old Testament shouts the story of Jesus. Those stories aren't in there just to kind of be bedtime stories for our kids or stories for children's church. They're stories about someone walking in the midst of the fire. There's stories about three days being in the belly of a fish. There's stories about a kinsman redeemer because all of these stories shout Jesus. He's the answer to every story. He's the hero of every story. And this gives us to part three where the soap opera continues. So as Naomi and Ruth go back into Bethlehem. They, they are part of the welfare system, the caste system. Have you ever heard the statement, outcast? They're an outcast, okay, outcast in society. Well, in, in Middle Eastern culture, there is a caste system. And if you're, uh, if you're in the top of the caste, like a molding, like a mold caste, if you're in the top, then you, you stay in the top. If you are born in the bottom of the caste system, you stay in the bottom. And you're not, you, you shouldn't even think about trying to uh, climb any kind of ladder. You're, you are born into the lower part. You're going to stay in the lower part. And you're all part of this dynamic. It's even in their religion. So a outcast is someone that's not even on the socioeconomic scale. They are not even in the caste. They are out of the caste. They are an outcast over here. Naomi and Ruth are outcast in this culture. And the way they are going to survive is the welfare system of the day. It's not a check that comes into the mail. It's not a debit card. It is, it is the responsibility of Ruth to go out there for her aging mother-in-law, and she would go into a field, and during the barley harvest, as the person with the sickle would slice down the crop, people behind them would have a large bucket, and they would collect that which is being cut, okay? And then the poor, based on the word of God, the poor were allowed to walk behind them and whatever was cut and gathered, whatever was kind of the, the dregs, whatever was the leftovers, they were allowed to pick that up and that would be the way that the culture took care of the poor. The Bible says it like this, leave the corners of your fields for the poor. I wonder how many of us are mowing our every corner of our financial fields and we never leave anything for anybody else. Like God invites us to create some margin to put him first and to leave the corners for those that need it. That's what we want to do, especially in Christmas season. Awesome opportunity to leave the corners for those that need it. And so sure enough, Ruth finds a field and finds uh, a team. And as they are uh, going through the process, she's beginning to pick it up. And sure enough, the owner of this field who owned many fields, the Bible says he was unbelievably wealthy. His name is Boaz. He comes, he comes riding in on his horse to see his crop and he's talking to his foreman. And, and as, he, as he's looking ar around, he catches eyes with Ruth. Lady in 
like, all of a sudden he says, who is this girl? They're like, well, that's Ruth or mother-in-law's Naomi. And he's like, hey. And so he basically, he, he has a liking to Ruth. He's a single older bachelor. Um, and and he, he uh, wants to take care of her. So he, he actually tells some of his men, leave her alone, don't touch her. And listen, instead of just leaving, you know, instead of filling it up, I want you to leave extra for her. So the, the people gathering are kind of like secretly leave, leaving extra. And Ruth is like, oh, thank you, Lord. And she's getting extra and extra and extra. So she goes home to, to, to mother-in-law Naomi and, and she lays it on, the, on, the, on the, uh, uh, the table. She's like, how'd you get all this? It's like, I was in the field. Like, man, whose field was it? And she goes, oh, it was a guy named Boaz. And Naomi goes, huh? what? <laughs> Holy moly. That's Hebrew for Whoa. As Boaz is a relative of ours. Boaz is a, a long relative in the family lines. He's a relative of my husband. There might be some hope here. Well, seven weeks pass and they begin to make relationship and they share a lunch together and they do a, a video collage, you know, the, the whole thing you see in the movies where they're, they're, they're taking selfies and, and they're eating ice cream and they, you know, stick the ice cream in the nose and he's like, <laughs> you know, and it's so fun. Like I said, it snows, there's a dog, it's the Hallmark Bible story. Well, finally it gets to the point where the harvest is almost over and there's going to be no connection anymore because there's going to be no more harvesting. Seven weeks later, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, says to Ruth, hey, my daughter, I must find a home for you. And here's my plan. I want you to be well provided for. Now, Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of us. And tonight, he's going to be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. I want you to wash <laughs> because girl, you stinketh, okay? Like wash, put on perfume and get dressed in your best clothes. Now then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. Now when he lies down, I want you to note the place where he's lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. Now, scholars are split in the interpretation of this. There is some, there is some cultural things that would suggest that this is a, a sexual thing. I don't, I don't land on that side. I think this is, is different than that, but we will see one of those in just a moment. He will tell you, so uncover his feet, lie down. He'll tell you what to do. <laughs> I bet he will. So when Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. He's tired. <sighs> Falls into the grain pile there in the barn. It's dimly lit by the kerosene lamps. He's had a lot to eat, maybe a little bit to drink because he's in good spirits and now he's gonna sleep this thing off. And Ruth approaches quietly, uncovered his feet and laid down. Now, in the middle of the night, something startled Boaz, startled the man and he turned. 
And there was a woman lying at his feet. And I know some of you single men, that is your scripture. You are claiming that for 2023. Find a good woman, do it in the right order, but that's your scripture. Who are you? He asked. Well, I'm your servant, Ruth. She said, it's dark in there. And this is, this is a, actually an innuendo. Spread the corner of your garment over me. In other words, take me. Take me as your wife. Take me as someone in your family, since you're a kinsman redeemer of our family. Whew. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. Now, this kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. I mean, you have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. She has shown herself not trying to be a gold digger. She's not trying to just go uh, and find the answer to her plight. So she's not chasing after anything. She's actually built relationship with Boaz, and this is a natural uh, uh, progression of their relationship. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I'm going to do for you all that you ask. All the people of my town know that you're a woman of noble character. Here's why they don't get together sexually. Because Boaz is trying to protect her noble character, number one. But secondly, there's another part of the story. He says, now, although it's true that I am a kinsman redeemer of our family, there's actually another one who's more closely related. There's another brother. And it would be his responsibility to take the land and the freedom and the justice and the family. So... Stay here for the night. Don't you move, okay? Because in the morning, if he wants to do this duty as your kinsman redeemer, okay, that's fine, 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 fine. Let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I'm gonna do it. So lie here until the morning. So sure enough, the rest of the story goes that early that morning, Boaz gets up and he meets this other relative and they have a discussion about Ruth and Naomi. And he talks about his relationship with Ruth and says, look, you could have it all, but through God's providence, God provides for Naomi and Ruth by opening the door. And this other kinsman says, Boaz, uh, it's all yours. And I mean, I wonder how excited Boaz was that morning gets back on his horse, and I mean full speed, galloping, just Horse is still mid-gallop, and he jumps out of the stirrups and goes to the barn door and throws it open, and beams of light, shaft, beams of light just spread through the barn onto the straw, and slowly Ruth lifts up her head and her hair flows down and there's little pieces of straw in her hair and he's like close your eyes make a wish he says girl you're mine and Boaz not only takes care of Ruth but takes care of Naomi. And the story goes, they lived happily ever after. And I want you to remember, all of this took place in a very familiar spot. Who knows how close this barn was to another? It would be 1,300 years later, but in the same city, another kinsman redeemer 
would be born. Not just, not just a baby. Even though Boaz is great. Boaz, what a hero. There was a better Boaz born in Bethlehem. You see, the better Boaz, his name's Jesus. And Jesus became our kinsman redeemer by choice, just like Boaz chose Ruth. He didn't have to, he chose to redeem you. And the land that was taken, the slavery into sin, the justice that he gives, and the family that he brings us into. Jesus paid the full price of your redemption. He didn't pay with it in silver and gold, he paid it with his blood. Jesus restores our lost inheritance. Sometimes to our own faults, sometimes just to the fall of and faults of others. And doesn't just restore an inheritance that you earned on this side of eternity. You become an heir to the inheritance of the God of the cosmos as a son or daughter, not orphaned, but adopted into the family. Jesus frees us from our slavery to sin. He's just good like that, everybody. Jesus offers new relationship and a new future, just like Ruth now had a new future. Just like Naomi now could be pleasant and lovely again. And the story ends like this. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Now the women said to Naomi, oh, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer, Naomi. May he become famous as they looked at this new grandson of Naomi's. May he become famous throughout Israel. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and she cared for him. And this was like the culmination of the greatest dream she had that she thought had been buried in Moab. The women living there said, oh, Naomi has a son. It wasn't even her son. Wasn't even really a relationship, but because of, because of this kinsman redeemer, she has a bloodline again, and they named that little boy Obed. Obed. That's not a very familiar name, but Obed was the father of Jesse. And then Jesse was the father of the king of Israel. And later would become, through that line, the king of kings, the prince of peace, the tidings of great joy. No matter what your family situation looks like, no matter what your past looks like, no matter how you have taken matters into your own hands, there's always a way for God to turn your detour into a new path for your plan R to become plan A again. It's a gift. 
he invites you to the table to be a part of his family. Would you pray with me? With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I wanna pray two different prayers. And the first is this, maybe there's a famine you're going through, a struggle, a place that Jesus needs to, to show up. If that's you across the room, would you just lift a hand up and I'd love to say a prayer over you. And, and as you put your hand down, I, I wanna teach you something. I wanna teach you that when I pray over you and say a prayer over you, I'm asking you don't just receive that prayer, but I'm asking you to kind of engage with me and pray with me in that. You don't have to even repeat what I'm praying, but like you need to flex that muscle too. You don't need a pastor praying for you. You can pray for you. You can pray to Jesus just as much as I can. So I wanna invite you to pray with me. God, there are famine and some dead ends in the room. Things where seemingly stuff is spun out of control, loss, hurt, death, pain, wounds. And we need someone that would just help. Thank you, Jesus, that you are a very present help in times of trouble. Now, God, I pray that even physically, emotionally, supernaturally, that every person in our rooms that are praying right now would sense your presence touching them right now, that they're not alone, that you're with them, that you're guiding them. As we continue to pray, you've never invited Jesus to be like the final authority in your life. Or maybe you have, but you've drifted from that. We all like sheep, we go astray, we all drift. If you need to recommit that today, you recognize that this morning, would you just put a hand up and then you can put it down? I, I need to recommit to Jesus today. Thank you, sir, in the back. Anybody else? Thank you, sir. Anybody else across the auditorium? Thank you, sir. Anybody else? There in Nacogdoches, just put a hand up and put it down. Let me pray over you. Father, thank you for not being mad at us. Thank you for giving moments like this to make things right. Thank you for redeeming everything we've lost. Lord, you died on the cross for us. You rose again three days later. You prepare a place in heaven for us. Jesus, thank you. I wanna give my life to you and I want you to sit on the throne of my heart, be the final authority of my life and take my sin away, that, that stuff that separates me from you. Thank you for giving me a fresh start this morning. We ask it all in Jesus' name, amen.